Welcome to the Keep Cool Show, the podcast in which we cover how cutting-edge climate technologies connect to the world in which we live. I'm your host, Nick Van Osdall. All these states have these goals of renewable generation by 2030, by 2035, and those dates aren't getting any further out, right? Yeah. <laughs> and and it's like the first governor that put the 2030 number out, it was like 20 years or yeah. whatever, and it keeps getting closer. And when I think about what we struggle with the most, it's definitely utility interconnection. Mm. And I think if we as an industry with the utilities and the actual public entities, like the DPUs, the state legislatures, whatnot, can simplify and go ahead and just what I would call like update the tariffs and the structure that exists today, you will see a lot more projects get deployed a lot quicker. All right, Barrett, welcome to the Keep Cool Show. It's great to have you. Nick, thank you so much for inviting me. Pleasure to be here. Yeah, I'm really excited for this conversation, especially as, you know, as I look ahead to Q3, energy storage in particular is a pivotal topic in climate tech and the energy transition that I'm keen to focus on more. So excited to chat all about that with you and the experience that you bring to the table. No, it's definitely a dynamic and interesting space and one that's continuing to evolve in real time. So excellent. Yeah, I'm stoked to talk a lot about Agilitas Energy and kind of the transition that the company's made over the past, you know, 10 years or so to get to a point where you all are working really closely on deploying more energy storage in the U.S. But why don't we start a little bit with your own background and kind of how you got to the point you are today where you're sort of leading the charge on getting more battery energy storage deployed? No, absolutely. So look, I actually started out specifically doing real estate development and the genesis of how I got into energy and specifically founding Agilitas Energy started because around 2014, 2015 timeframe, my company on the real estate side was getting a bunch of inbound calls from solar energy developers looking to lease rooftop space across our real estate portfolio. Mm. And at the time, it was one of the things that didn't make sense to me. It's kind of like someone wants to lease your roof that's found money. Of course, you're <laughs> going to go ahead and do that. And so we ended up as an organization taking a deeper look at the business model there and really saw that solar energy development was very similar to real estate development, just instead of leasing units for multifamily housing or student housing, which was what we were in, it's building solar energy systems to sell kilowatt hours mm -hmm. and the skill sets of being able to get through the obstacle course of regulatory frameworks and entitlements on the real estate side is very, very transitionable into the energy side. So around that time in 2015, we jumped in and then never looked back in terms mm -hmm. of becoming full thrust in the energy <laughs> space. So that's how it started. And, you know, we primarily were doing standalone solar array development in New Hampshire, in Massachusetts, down into Long Island, New York, and eventually sold an operating portfolio of projects in 2020. Got it. And at that point, we took those sale proceeds, put them into the next portfolio with the strategic focus of focusing on storage, both coupled storage, meaning solar plus storage, and then standalone storage. As we kind of understood, I think, that with renewables and the intermittent nature of the energy generation, storage is a big cog in terms of figuring out how to make that power and energy more stable in the grid. Absolutely. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I'm really curious to dig in a little more into kind of already started to hint at it just now 
at that calculus when you were moving from the first portfolio to the second, first being more standalone solar, second focusing a lot more on storage? What were some of the other things that you were seeing maybe in the lead up to 2020 that really tipped you off that this was going to be like the next opportunity? Great question. Well, I would say that the primary driver was looking at a variety of state programs that mm. were getting put in place at the various public utilities commissions and DPUs. And more, I would say the front of mind program was actually Massachusetts Smart and the Clean Peak program, Got it. which the Commonwealth of Massachusetts has always been, I would say, one of the leading states in terms of generating programs to incentivize renewable energy deployment. And both of the programs, the Clean Peak program, as well as the Massachusetts Smart program, which is a, a solar program that also incentivizes energy storage coupling with the solar system, made it very economically feasible to put batteries in place. Mm. And we started to see other programs shift into incentivizing storage as well, like New York with their VEDER program. And so we took a step back and said, big picture, it looks like the smartest states are putting forth economic signals to deploy energy storage. Mm -hmm. There's an obvious reason for this. And so this is now the next asset class that we need to go ahead and chase as an organization. Got it. Yeah, it's encouraging to hear that even as early as, as 2020, there were states thinking really critically about, you know, what is the next leg of renewable energy penetration in our state look like? Because as you mentioned, you know, there's kind of a cap to how much renewable energy capacity you can deploy before the storage becomes really an even more critical component to fully valorize all of the energy that that you're producing. I'm also curious whether there was an element of the kind of competition that fed into that decision to go after storage more. Did it feel like the solar, the standalone solar space was getting a bit crowded in terms of folks chasing that opportunity? And was that part of the calculus as well? Yeah, absolutely. So it was kind of funny in some ways that <laughs> there was a multitude of players within the solar energy space. And when we think about a solar array, we really think about a passive asset that from a management perspective, you need to go ahead and ensure that from an operations and maintenance perspective, the asset's working and it's functioning as designed, mm -hmm. but it's very passive in terms of how to go ahead and operate that asset. Sure. So from a financial buyer perspective, it becomes the lowest cost of capital racing mm -hmm. to the bottom on who can go ahead and deal with having the lowest return on the asset. Got it. When you look to energy storage, it's much more of an active revenue management type asset. And there's a lot more involvement from an asset management perspective where, like for an example, our company is actively bidding, trading, and forecasting our energy storage assets in the market. And so we're actively in the power markets every day trying to go ahead and maximize revenue for those assets. Yeah. And we have to deal with a multitude of problems, right? In terms of just operating the system, looking at weather patterns, right. figuring out peak load times for our load reduction assets. right. And so all I would go ahead and say is that the actual financial pro forma of an energy storage system is much more dependent on the operator themselves versus just making sure that everything is working properly. Yeah, that's really interesting. It's like you almost have to think a lot more like an actual grid operator in terms of everything you mentioned of, you know, 
how much demand is there going to be today? What type of generation are we expected to see today? It's like, is anything offline? Where are the problems going to show up? That type of stuff. Exactly. And it was interesting in not to speak too generally, but I would just say that the story that I gave you in terms of my segue into solar development is actually the primary way that most solar developers came into being. They were a real <laughs> estate developer. They saw a state type program that they could leverage, same skill set as doing real estate development. And so most of the solar energy developers we see normally have a background in real estate development, at least the original principles. But when we shift to energy storage, it's actually interesting that, like as an example in my company, the head of our asset management team has a power markets background. Right. So it's very much kind of growing up within the power markets, whether that was originally running combined cycle natural gas power plants or whatnot for some of the big guys right. <laughs> and being able to leverage that experience and skill set, putting it on energy storage. I'm impressed that y'all were able to make that transition. And I'm, I'm sure that kind of conscientious team build out was a big part of it. And I'm excited to talk more about the kind of the power markets dynamics. But, you know, to get folks up to speed for folks listening in, why don't we start with a little bit of a discussion around what it actually looks like to develop an energy storage project kind of be a lot to do the whole thing from start to finish, but maybe we can paint with broad strokes to give people kind of a perspective on all the different things that actually take to like even just getting the batteries in place to begin with before operating them. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, look, it's funny, right? I think that sometimes people forget that we're still in the infrastructure business and that means, you know, putting steel in the ground. Right. And that takes a while, unfortunately, (laughs) to go ahead and run through all the regulatory framework that exists. But big picture, when we look at siting an energy storage system, and I guess just from the sake of simplicity, we'll just say a standalone energy storage system. Sure. We're looking normally to go ahead and site that system where there's a specific economic signal that's saying, wow, we should really go ahead and place an energy storage system in this area. Then we're doing land screening to figure out the zoning, figure out the right zones that can accept an energy storage asset. Mm -hmm. You have to imagine that a bunch of the municipal zoning codes have not contemplated energy storage as even being a thing, right? Right. So, I mean, 10 years ago, it wasn't, so. Right. And so you're looking for heavy industrial, light commercial, that kind of stuff. You're not putting it in a residential neighborhood, at least at, at the scale that we're talking about. Then once we go ahead and find the land parcels that make sense, it then becomes an interconnection configuration in terms of what circuits are available, how much capacity to install new generation is available, and what is that cost to go ahead and interconnect into the grid. And so you can already imagine that (laughs) probably for 50 sites that we've looked at, maybe 15, Mm. 10 make it passed just those two components. Got it. Even just kind of like the evaluation stage. Exactly. And then it becomes solidifying a deal with the landlord, whether it's an option to purchase or an option to lease once we've zeroed in on the site. And then the municipal and state and utility entitlements then begin. Yeah. And so that usually runs about you know, depending on the state, obviously Texas is faster than Massachusetts Mm. or New York, but you're probably talking anywhere between 18 to 36 months to go ahead and fully develop a project to notice to proceed, which is the actual start of construction. 
that's a lot of lead time before breaking ground and a lot of different stakeholders to work with. Absolutely. And then construction, good news, is pretty quick on these systems Mm. because the main components of the system are the batteries and the inverters, Mm -hmm. the switch gear and the transformers, things like that. And the actual, call it hard balance of system that exists on the site itself is pretty straightforward and quick. So, you know, as long as we have supply locked up in terms of available to deploy, say right at that NTP timeframe, that system can go ahead and and be done in as quickly as six months. And then it's just waiting on the utility to perform the actual interconnection, which generally speaking, I would just say that the one X factor in all of the things that we do is the actual interconnecting utility. And that's primarily because the utilities and the way that the grid has been set up is not necessarily able to go ahead and accept the amount of small resources that are now being interconnected into the grid, right? which causes delays. It's very costly to go ahead and interconnect. And that's kind of the two main barriers to getting a system actually online into the power market. Yeah, I think we've seen a lot of that in the last year or two, especially in the wake of the Inflation Reduction Act with just a ballooning of the length of the interconnection queue itself as a lot more developers want to develop more solar or want to develop more coupled solar and energy storage or standalone storage. I think, you know, the amount of projects that have applied for interconnection has just kind of like overwhelmed the system and unfortunately slowed down deployment. But I mean, it is kind of part and parcel of You have a lot more folks seeking interconnection, which is a good thing. And and it makes sense that the queue would kind of get log jammed a little bit, but definitely a topic that we can talk about a little more of maybe how different stakeholders can work together to accelerate some of that deployment again. Yeah, I would say that when we think about how to accelerate deployment, and this is really from a 30,000 foot view, Mm -hmm. because I don't want to overly (laughs) simplify this without adding the caveat. That's definitely complicated stuff. But big picture. When we think about utilities Mm. specifically, they're a regulated utility monopoly that in essence is guaranteed a return on its equity by the DPU or the Public Utilities Commission of the state on all their capital deployment. The way that interconnection works now is that the developer ends up paying a one-time fee to the utility to go ahead and interconnect her system. And the issue is the utility itself does not make any profit on that interconnection other than a small margin on actually doing the work. They're not able to rate bake it or put it into their capital expenditure to earn their continuous 10%. Sure. Their primary incentive is like the initial deployment of capital. Is that right? Correct. Right. So they want to build poles and lines. They want to interconnect customers that are paying. This is secondary. This is something that they're forced to do. And so when we think about it and we just think about how like capitalism works and economic signals work (laughs) and the utilities are working for the shareholders, right? And they also have a huge incentive to make sure that the grid operates properly and they don't get calls from the governor's (laughs) office because power is down or in life safety and everything like that. I think that what we will eventually see and one of the things that I think is now being talked about more, which Mm. is great that it's kind of in the dialogue is that you can have the developers pay for the interconnection, but you should allow the utilities to go ahead and rate bake the cost so that Mm. they have every incentive to hurry up 
with the connection itself. Yeah. Otherwise, this becomes a lower priority in terms of getting things through the interconnection queue if Interesting. it's a one-time profit. That's, again, not nuanced at all. That's super high level. So I <laughs> want to just add the caveat that yeah. that's, again, how I'm looking at it. But to do that, we have to go ahead and have a regulatory framework change in each state, you know, because these are parameters that have already been set up by PUCs. But I think everybody has, like all these states have these goals of renewable generation by 2030, by 2035. And those dates aren't getting any further out, right? Yeah. <laughs> and and it's like the first governor that put the 2030 number out, it was like 20 years or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> and it keeps getting closer. And when I think about what we struggle with the most, it's definitely utility interconnection. Mm. And I think if we as an industry with the utilities and the actual public entities like the DPUs, the state legislatures, whatnot, can simplify and go ahead and just what I would call like update the tariffs and the structure that exists today, you will see a lot more projects get deployed a lot quicker. Yeah, no, it makes a lot of sense that there's a kind of an, an incentive reconfiguration that would help a lot with the actual kind of speed and not just the scale. Exactly. Very interesting. Yeah, that's something good for me to, to research a lot more, you know, even as someone that started to spend a lot more time in this space, when you start looking at all of the different stakeholders and all of the different structures, it can get a bit overwhelming. <laughs> no, absolutely. We, I would just say that like electricity and power markets is just one of the most complicated, you know, things that kind of exist because, I mean, it, electricity really is a utility in terms of just the general economy and people's well-being and life. Right. But we also have the friction of it being a free market. Right. And, you know, people trying to earn profit. And so it's the edges that rub together every day of making sure that this is widely available for the population, right. which is electricity, but also having enough economic incentive to go ahead and be able to deliver the actual electricity properly. Right. Yeah. So it's just every day. There's so <laughs> many different stakeholders involved. There's kind of like the dichotomy or the edge of electricity as a commodity, which it is, you know, to an extent. But. It also isn't in some circumstances, like if you have available solar energy during the day when there isn't a lot of demand, that isn't necessarily as valuable as stored solar energy in a battery at night when demand is higher. So kind of that refocuses on the importance of energy storage as well and kind of grounds us back in that component of the conversation. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, what I would just go ahead and say is that the energy storage assets give the optionality to deploy energy and power at the times that it's needed most when right. the other renewable resources aren't right. operating, right? And so like you continue to see as renewable penetration increases, what's called the duck curve within these ISOs. And essentially, just so everybody understands what that is, during noon on a Wednesday, as a bad <laughs> example, we are just seeing pricing go real low in the right. power market, sometimes even negative because there is so much solar production plus wind production, et cetera. And there's just no actual market for electricity because all of these systems are just producing full tilt. Right. But then we fast forward to like five o'clock when everybody's getting home and starting to cook dinner and turn on their <laughs> air conditioners plug in their cars and plug in their cars, which is like a whole other thing <laughs> that's going to go ahead and really shake things up. You go ahead and you see these peaks start to happen because demand is now surging, but the solar 
is not producing like it was at 12 o'clock. Right. And so that's when we can do the power shifting that all of these programs that the states have put in place, as well as just general economics are starting to signal to do so that we can reduce that peak time at, say, 5 p.m. Right. on a Wednesday and drop the load down substantially by shifting the power that was generated at noon. This is a good opportunity to talk a little bit about the tech itself, because, you know, energy storage as a concept has certainly existed for a long time. I think it's something like probably more than half of grid connected energy storage in the U.S. is a little bit more old fashioned, though. It's kind of pumped hydro where, you know, super simple concept and super reasonable and efficient concept where you move water up and down a hill and use kind of the gravitational energy as a form of energy storage. But now we're really starting to see battery energy storage systems take off as battery technology has improved a lot in the past kind of few decades. Probably, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, spearheaded initially by the desire to build things like EVs and use batteries there. But I think folks pretty quickly also recognized that there was an opportunity to use the same technology on the grid. But yeah, let's talk a little bit about the battery systems that you all deploy. And I'd be curious if that's already kind of shifted over the past three years from 2020 to now, or if it's still similar systems. What I would just go ahead and say, just taking a step back, is that Agilitas Energy is is definitely technology agnostic. Mm -hmm. So when we look at the actual technology, we're picking that technology depending on use case, depending on what problem we're actually trying to solve. Right. Now, with that being said, I would go ahead and make the global statement that the majority <laughs> of systems that exist now that are battery energy storage mm-hmm. are lithium ion. Right. And I can tell you that Agilitas Energy has only lithium ion systems deployed sure. at the yeah. moment. We continue to go ahead and look at flow batteries mm. um, and other new technologies that are rapidly rapidly mm-hmm. accelerating in terms of their their features and usability, especially at scale. Mm-hmm. And my feeling is that we're within 18 months of deploying a different type of technology. And it's, you know, one of the crazy things is, Nick, is that lithium ion is very expensive. Sure. And it's just not cheap. It's just not cheap. And when we can go ahead and have a system that is not made of lithium ion perform the same Mm. as lithium ion or close to lithium ion, we're going to pick that system. Or in some instances, when we look at long duration applications, that means like essentially more than two hours, sometimes more than four hours, different technologies work a lot better than lithium ion. The issue with lithium ion is that when we think about bankability or, you know, when we think about these projects, They have a variety of financial stakeholders that are investing in the project from a project finance perspective. So Agilitas Energy owns the project, but we also have bank debt. We have tax equity, the tax credit buyer. And you would just have to imagine that these large financial institutions really want the tried and true. They like something that they already know and have seen work. Right, exactly. So, you know, getting them over the goal line on something that's shiny and new with a company that doesn't have, say, the wherewithal of like an LG or a Samsung or something like that becomes challenging. But I mean, they're getting around to it. And these new companies are underwriting large deals and have independent engineering reports and everything like that. 
But what I would just go ahead and say is the other issue is that lithium ion works really well in terms of <laughs> response time, yeah. in terms of pushing out power instantaneously within a millisecond. Yeah. Speed to discharge. Yeah. Exactly. And so all the economic signals that are in these power markets are all pushing for paying for power and not mm -hmm. energy necessarily. Mm, right. Yeah. So it's like the instantaneously, like how fast can I push five megawatts of power right. versus can I hold five megawatts of power for six hours? Right. Yeah. There's not a mechanism yet to pay for that six hour dispatch, but that's coming. I'm certain of it because again, like as we continue to see the ebb and flow of the grid and more renewable penetration, there's just going to be a need for a long duration storage to really flatten out those peaks at the evening or maybe even overnight, as you suggested earlier. Yeah. And that's when I think we're going to really see a lot more technology types that are cost effective in dealing with energy duration. Yeah. Become more widely deployed. Yeah. There's so much interesting stuff in what you just said. First of all, I think the distinction between power and energy and, and duration of energy storage is, is a really an interesting one. I mean, I think, you know, as we're recording this, Texas is in the middle of a, a massive heat wave, plenty of challenges for them meeting demand last night and ERCOT and all that. And I think a good example is there was a nuclear power plant in Texas that went offline. I don't, didn't read it exactly into why last night, but that's a perfect example of where you lose probably like a gigawatt of power generation capacity instantaneously. And that's a case where like, if you have energy storage systems, it's not just about the duration at that point. You need to be able to discharge power from those systems quickly in that case. And that's an important distinction between how quickly can I discharge power versus, you know, can it go all night? No, absolutely. And I would just say that, yeah, obviously with uh, the nuclear power plant tripping off or coming offline, I mean, nuclear is your true base load generation that it just it exists it is stable it's always there right and there is a world that energy storage can become that base load as well right but it's all about duration as well yeah. you know in terms of making sure that you know you have a system that's six eight hours that can right. produce consistently and we just haven't seen you know the economics yet to incentivize that type of a deployment but i can tell you that we're definitely seeing things evolve within the power markets that eventually will get there. Zooming out a tiny bit, it's really interesting how we've introduced this conversation around there are so many different characteristics of a battery energy storage system that matter and that you can optimize for and that can occasionally compete. There's the duration, there's ability to discharge quickly, there's obviously like the cost of the material inputs. But then there's other things too. There's like, you know, how many cycles can you use the system for before it starts to degrade? So kind of like durability over the long haul is another consideration. I think where material inputs for a battery system come from are becoming particularly interesting, not just because it's an important consideration for the reliability of a supply chain, but because there's a lot of incentives in the U.S. now for things that are more domestically sourced and made than not. So yeah, I mean, I can imagine that as you all look at any individual site, that's, you know, just in the same vein of the earlier discussion around how many different stakeholders there are, there's so many different factors to consider too, in terms of what's the best possible system for that site. Yeah, absolutely. And look, I'll be the first one to jump up and down and say, I look forward to the day that we can go ahead and have domestic content on yeah. the energy storage side. And I know there's a variety of companies out there that are working to 
tool up factories and production within the U.S. to hit that. But the earliest that I've heard is about 2025. But obviously, from an economic standpoint, not only does it make sense, but it feels great to be able to have more control over your own logistics and supply by having it in country versus, you know, the majority of our systems right now are shipped from overseas. And obviously, COVID-19 and the whole supply chain issue has really (laughs) bitten people hard where, you know, to time these things perfectly and get steel in the ground when you have a contract to to build a system by X for, yeah. you know, the utility. You just don't need more headaches, <laughs> right? So, yeah, no, that makes perfect sense. And, you know, earlier you mentioned that you'd forecast that in about 18 months, approximately, you would potentially be at a point where you're deploying a system that isn't lithium-ion. Are you able to speak to what you think the leading horse for that next system is? Or is that a trade secret for now? (laughs) It's definitely not a trade secret, but, you know, I don't want to speak out of turn, but I would say that there's a few companies that we're looking at, Entervenue, EOS, and Ambry, which are all alternative technologies. Mm. And really, when we think about going ahead and deploying those types of systems, it's related to an energy play. So instead of going ahead and looking to have that instantaneous response of power to the grid, what we're really looking to go ahead and maximize are the amount of kilowatt hours that we're able to capture from what's called inverter clipping. So when you, this is off of a solar array. So when we think about a solar array in generation, I'm trying to think about how the easiest way to explain this is there's a bunch of kilowatt hours that are lost due sure. to just inefficiency within the way that the inverters work and they're converting DC power into AC power and and pushing it out to the grid. When we're able to go ahead and DC couple energy Mm. storage to the solar array, we're able to capture those kilowatt hours in the batteries and then push them out. And when you have a power purchase agreement or kind of a fixed price contract on those kilowatt hours, we're looking to generate as many kilowatt hours that we can every day. Right. Lithium ion degrades and Obviously, we don't need to go ahead and push the instantaneous power that I keep talking about as fast as possible. Yeah. So now we're talking about an energy play where we go ahead and we set up batteries that are capturing these excess kilowatt hours, storing them, and then cycling many times a day to go ahead and pick up those extra megawatt hours and push them through into the grid. And so, like, we look at some of these systems. And they're saying that they can cycle 30,000 times without any degradation, which is crazy because when we think about lithium ion, we're cycling 365 times, maybe a year, and you're degrading every year and you've got to augment and you got to do a bunch of other things. Mm. And so it just makes a lot of sense from a cost perspective and from a lifetime usability perspective to use the other technologies for that type of application. Yeah, interesting. The distinction kind of between like a a power play and an energy play. That's definitely enlightening for me. And yeah, I didn't realize also that like you can use batteries as almost like a wedge between that DCAC conversion to capture more kilowatt hours. I would have almost expected that that would reduce efficiency, but that's cool to hear that there's an opportunity to harness even more. Yeah, it's pretty much predicated on the fact that we're really able to go ahead and oversize the solar array to the AC interconnection size so that we're just generating so much more that Mm. if you didn't have a battery, 
they would all those kilowatt hours would just be gone. But now right. the battery allows you to oversize that solar array so much that you're capturing it. And it makes sense from it, from just getting a higher energy yield from that system. Well, yeah, as someone who, you know, focuses a lot on the innovation side and looking at early stage companies, I've got a lot of love and excitement about some of the companies that are developing all different types of, you know, new battery energy storage systems. It'll be exciting to see if, you know, Form Energy's iron air battery is available kind of 2027, 2028, as they forecast, that could be really cheap and that could be interesting for, for the energy play, but there's a wide gulf between breaking ground on their factory and producing actual systems. So fingers crossed. <laughs> fingers crossed for sure. And to, um, you spoke to this a little bit earlier about really having an edge interconnection, but I'd love to talk a little bit more about, you know, how you see Agilitas Energies in terms of like the business model, what you think is the most defensible and, and to speak a little bit more to where you really think kind of like the strength of, of the business lies. Absolutely. Well, I would go ahead and, and say that I think it's a few different attributes, but I'm going to first lead with the fact that we're really a fully integrated company. So mm -hmm. we've embraced the clean energy IPP model where yeah. we do our own development in-house, which is, you know, greenfield origination in terms of bringing projects from the very inception to NTP, as well as M&A opportunities that exist mm -hmm. for projects. And we're probably a lot more risk tolerant than the next guys because we have our in-house EPC, which we do all of our own design, procurement, and then construction management of our systems. We don't do that for third parties, but we do that for ourselves. But I think that gives us another level of insight into some of the risks of a particular project, some of the costs that maybe mm -hmm. would not be known by, say, a pure financial buyer or right. whatnot, or someone that would have to third party the EPC. And then the asset management attribute we also have in-house where, again, like I had mentioned earlier on, we're actively managing these systems hour by hour every day. Yeah. And so we definitely have our own models our own proprietary insights into how we think these systems are going to perform. And so when you stack those three things together, I'd like to believe that we have some of the best insight in the market on what project makes sense and what project doesn't, mm. and then actually being able to hit pro forma from an asset management perspective in reality and looking at the existing assets and how they're doing, comparing that to... Mm say, a project that we're bringing through. And then the other thing is right now we are doing primarily solar plus energy storage and standalone storage, but we're also generation agnostic. So I imagine that in the near future, we will go ahead and find a wind portfolio mm -hmm. that's operating or maybe is NTP looking for a home to acquire mm -hmm. and then figure out where energy storage makes sense on that. And then same thing with hydroelectric as well and being able to couple storage on those where it makes sense. And, you know, I would just say that, like, generally speaking, looking at all generation with coupling storage and how those dynamics work and where we're able to go ahead and see an asset that, say, is worth 100, but adding energy storage, we make it worth 125. Yeah. That's something that I don't think most companies have the ability to do at the yeah. moment. Obviously, the big guys, but again, we're a mid-market player. We're not mm. necessarily chasing the gigawatt deals. We're looking more for anywhere between 1 to 20 megawatts distributed sure. generation. 
Yeah. And so that that's where I think we lean, you know, into those strengths to go ahead and build the business. Yeah. The power markets and operations piece is particularly compelling to me because I can see how as you build more expertise and have more years of operating projects like that is data and operational knowledge that will compound. And that particularly to me strikes me as kind of defensible. It's like you have years of operating these assets that folks that might enter the arena won't. And so there's just a lot of, you know, knowledge that I imagine y'all are already accumulating in terms of those dynamics that then feeds into the front end of like, where do we develop a project or where do we want to start developing new projects or what else might we look to get into? Well said, exactly. One question that I always like to ask, and we've done a decent amount of thinking about the future already, but how do you, you know, kind of as the founder of the business, want to measure your success, whether it's over the next year or a longer time frame, like out to 2030? What are some of the kind of core KPIs that you focus on? Well, I would go ahead and say that when we look at our business, what's most important is deployment of megawatts. So mm-hmm. actually getting steel in the ground on projects. Mm-hmm. And so I would go ahead and bifurcate the two main KPIs into two different buckets. First one is to go ahead and have a national footprint. So mm-hmm. we are operating assets throughout the country. Today, we're in Massachusetts, New York. Texas, Mm -hmm. but I'd like to be able to look back in three years and see that we have a smattering of assets in California and MISO and PJM, et cetera. Yeah. The other main KPI is in the amount of megawatts that are being successfully deployed and operated. Right. And so we would like to go ahead and over the next three years, amalgamate a portfolio of over a half a gigawatt. Yeah of projects that are actually operating, which at that scale, from a distributed generation perspective, that's pretty sizable. Again, there's massive utility projects that are like 300 megawatts (laughs) a piece, but that's not really our market. So that's what I'd like to see happen. And we have that pipeline today. And so now it's just honestly getting the oranges down the conveyor belt (laughs) to processing, right? Yeah. So, and that takes time and a lot of work. No doubt. But there's also a massive benefit to it. It would certainly help reduce emissions and capture more of the clean energy that solar and potentially also wind systems in the future, as you pointed to, are producing. So it's important work and I'm rooting for y'all. Thank you. And then a fun question that I always like to ask folks, we talked a lot about battery innovation, but what else is happening in power or in other climate tech that you just find particularly compelling and interesting? Like, are there other technology companies that you look at that and you're like, wow, if I wasn't working in energy storage, maybe I'd go hitch my wagon to that star. Now, that's interesting. I mean, I would say from a technical perspective, like a technology perspective, I think that we're definitely seeing an evolution in terms of AI get Mm. into the space and being able to kind of standardize, normalize operation of these assets, Mm. maybe better than a human could do it, or at least increase the value that an individual human is able to create when they're managing like a fleet. Yeah. What I'm also just generally interested in that we touched on earlier is I think that we are going to see a resurgence of hydroelectric development and construction within the country. Yeah. Which when you think about hydroelectric, it's one of the oldest, it is like the oldest form of energy generation that exists. Right. But I think now, based on the infrastructure bill, based on the Inflation Reduction Act, this now pencils. Interesting. And that's very new. And 
that's something that we are very excited about at Agilitas Energy. Cool. Yeah, that's the first time I'm hearing that. But yeah, it is funny that sometimes we forget things like hydroelectric, even though, you know, especially at a global level and maybe even still at a national level, I think if you look at like actual hours of clean energy or power, like produced, like hydroelectric might still be competitive for more than solar and wind together. So there's all this hype about solar and wind, which is important and we need to develop a lot more of it. But yeah, some of these assets that have been in place for 50 plus years are still chugging along and shouldn't forget about them. <laughs> That's right. And I think there's going to be new ones. And I think that energy storage is going to add a unique attribute when you couple it with hydro, which we're starting to see already. So yeah, speak more, a little bit more to that because I kind of see hydroelectric as already closer to baseload. What do you think pairing energy storage with it will unlock? Yeah, I think that you're going to go ahead and see specific instances where you're going to just be able to have a more stable mm. generating asset. So obviously, when we think about hydroelectric, you can go with the really big systems, right? Where yeah. those are very much like baseload. But then when you think about actually the majority of systems that exist, they're more like run of river. And so there is some level of intermittency or lower production that exists. But I also think that you're going to be able to power shift some of those kilowatt hours to Mm -hmm. times where they're getting paid more, say, versus at nighttime when, say, the LMP prices are the lowest, when you can make more during the day. And if you already have that form of generation just churning, being able to shift that energy mm. is a nice feature. And that's probably also an example where lithium ion is not the technology of choice. You're going yeah. for that energy play that I was mentioning earlier because we want to store as many kilowatt hours as possible as cost effective. The Rod of River, it's funny how, you know, a few centuries on, we're still thinking about the old kind of windmill on the river concept. Still valuable. That's right. That's right. <laughs> Just paired with some new uh, energy storage innovation. Love it. All right. Well, this has been a fantastic conversation, Barrett. Super appreciate it. I'm super excited about it. And I think listeners will will get a lot out of it. You know, in closing, what's the right way for folks that are interested in Agilitas Energy to kind of keep up with the story, keep up with what y'all are doing? Where should folks keep an eye on the work that y'all are doing? Well, I would say that the two best places are LinkedIn and they can follow our corporate page as well as the website which is agilitasenergy.com. And we're going to have all the recent news and publications and everything like that that we're working on. Beautiful. Yeah, well, I'll be sure to, to cheer on as you all make more announcements in the future of projects that have been developed and connected and are ready to go. And yeah, hopefully we uh, talk again in a year and have a lot more uh, to talk about on the innovation side as well as on the success side of deploying more projects. Well, Nick, it's been wonderful talking with you. Thank you so much for having me on the podcast. And yeah, I look forward to it getting published. Beautiful. Yeah. All right. Talk soon, Barrett. All right. Thanks so much. Thanks for tuning in. So you don't miss the next episode on another cutting edge climate tech. Make sure to subscribe on Spotify, Apple, Google, or wherever it is that you get your podcasts. And to get even deeper, you can sign up for my newsletter on workweek.com. We'll see you soon.